Good morning. We are uh, we're almost done with Romans. Yeah, I know. It seems like we just started. Shut up, James. It seems, you know, it just seems like yesterday that we started uh, when, in fact, it was 2010. Uh, we are rolling here through to the end of chapter 15. Uh, next week, Joe will finish us off. Uh, but this passage here that we have is sort of Paul summing up what he's been saying for the last 15 chapters. And he's talking about the way that God is doing what he is doing, and therefore, in light of that, what Paul is doing according to God's will. Starting in verse 7, Paul says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. And again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, the one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I've written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And this is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. So what's God doing? I think in these references to the Old Testament passages, Paul is laying out sort of a framework. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, he says in verse 8 Paul, that God is, in fact, confirming his promises to the patriarchs. And what was the very first one of those? His promise to Abraham in the beginning of chapter 12. Yahweh said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
here we have the initial division of the world into Jew and Gentile, into the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest of the world. Here God is telling Abraham what his strategy is going to be for fixing the mess that humanity managed to get itself in. You may recall the story about the garden and the snake and the fruit and sin and the destruction of perfection that God had created and, as a result, all kinds of human suffering. Separation from God, for one, but our own guilty consciences and our broken relationships and our messed up relationship with creation, the very fact that work is hard all goes back to the fact that we sinned, that we chose to go our own way rather than following what God had said. And so what God is saying here is that I'm going to pick one people, I'm going to choose one nation, and I'm going to bless them so abundantly that it is through them that I will be able to bless all the nations of the world. This is the way I'm going to do it. This is the way I'm going to work out my mission of cosmic reconciliation. I'm picking this people. They're going to be the descendants of this Aramean dude named Abram who was really old. We've been studying in our house church the story of Abraham. Reminded again of just how ridiculous it is that if God is going to start a nation, he's going to found it with a 100-year-old guy and his 90-year-old wife who have not been able to have any kids, who, quite frankly, Abram demonstrates in his history that he is not exactly uh, Jesus. He is far, far short of moral perfection. He falls short in his vows to his wife, for one thing. But he also takes matters into his own hand on more than one occasion. He gets impatient with the time God's taking to fulfill his promises and the ways that he's choosing to do so. But nevertheless, God works through him. And then God works through his son Isaac. It's interesting when you read that story of the binding of Isaac and Abraham nearly sacrificing him. And then you don't get a whole lot more about the relationship between Isaac and Abraham. Remember, just think about how strained that relationship must have been after that. And then we have Jacob, who is just a frighteningly crooked individual. I mean, this guy is absolutely a swindler. You wouldn't want to meet him in a well-lit room, let alone a dark alley. And yet these are the people that God's going to use. And we get this in, in the beginning of the gospel when, when, when we get the genealogy of Jesus. You've got all kinds of sketchy people in the background. You've got adulterers and murderers. You've got prostitutes and, and you've got uh, uh, loose women from Moab. You've got all kinds of mess that God nevertheless is going to use. And God says in particular, I'm going to use this particular mess of this particular people, this particular family, the descendants of this guy, Abraham, and his kids, Isaac and Jacob. And through them, I am going to bless the entire world. And what Paul says here in Romans 15, he said, God is now, right, right now, like right now, Paul says, God is confirming the promise made to the patriarchs by Messiah becoming a servant of the circumcision of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, he is confirming the promises made to the patriarchs. What does he mean by that? Well, we're going to see how Paul rolls this out. So that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. 
Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Now, there's a passage from Psalm 18. What's interesting about this one is this is a psalm that uh, is attributed to, to David and said that he sang this one to Yahweh when Yahweh delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, but it doesn't show up in the Old Testament text, and this is basically a, a reprint of First Samuel. This is somebody getting, uh, uh, the compiler of the Old Testament getting paid by the word, one of these places where he copies a, a part of the, the Psalms and drops it into the Old Testament. Here, David is saying, Yahweh lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be God my Savior. He's the God who avenges me, who subdues nations under me, who saves me from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes from violent men. You rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you among the nations, O Yahweh. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And this psalm shows up in the Old Testament after, well after David has been rescued from Saul. This is actually showing up toward the end of David's career. Uh, and it shows up when David has, in fact, been rescued from the nations. But in order to be rescued from Saul, remember the king that uh, found himself threatened by David, he ended up having to take refuge among the nations. But David is saying here that I will praise you among the nations, Yahweh. I will sing praises to your name because he gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants Forever. What, what Paul is saying here in quoting this is that God is vindicating his king. That God is, in fact, showing unfailing kindness to his anointed. That he is giving his king great victories. Who is his king? Thank you. Yes, Jesus, the descendant of David, is this king that Paul is saying is being given great victories. To whom God is showing unfailing kindness. And again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This, this goes back to Deuteronomy, chapter 32. This is the song of Moses. And Moses, in this passage, it's, it's interesting. It, it, I'll start a little ways before verse 43 in chapter 32. Moses says, They're a nation without sense. This is not a good way to endear yourself to your audience when you're referring to them. They are a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. I mean, how can one man chase a thousand or two, put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, unless Yahweh had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies can see. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their Grapes are filled with poison, and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Well, have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods? Now 
Now where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See? See now, I am self, I myself am he. There's no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. So rejoice, O nations, with his people, and let all the angels worship him, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. This is one of these spots in, in uh, the poetic passages of the Old Testament where you have the direct object of the people being spoken to. Yes, Julie. Sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Forgive me, sorry. Deuteronomy 32. This is one of the spots where directly... God seems to be critiquing a particular enemy, a particular nation which is without sense. And in one sense, it seems like he's criticizing the nations. In another sense, it seems like he's criticizing his own people for acting like the nations. What we see here is God is declaring that he is taking vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And he is taking vengeance on his enemies, which means that he is rescuing his people. He is avenging the blood of his servants. And who are these enemies? Of course, these enemies are going to include these hostile nations, the people that stood against Israel as it went on its journeys. At this point, of course, they're not yet in the promised land, but they had fought a few skirmishes in the wilderness. Certainly been redeemed from Egypt. That would have been the biggie. But what we also see is that Paul, or that the, the writer of Deuteronomy here, Moses, in, in singing his song in God's voice, is saying that God is taking vengeance not only on his earthly enemies, but he is taking vengeance on his spiritual enemies, on these false gods to whom people made sacrifices, in whom they thought that they could rely. And that doesn't mean just those people who are from the nations. It doesn't mean just the pagans around them, the Gentiles. It means his people who were unfaithful. And God is taking vengeance on his own rebellious and unfaithful people, on those who claimed that they were serving God, but in fact were serving demons, those who were unfaithful. And you'll remember from when we've looked in the Gospels, this is one of the reasons that, that Jesus gets the Pharisees so mad at him, is he will quote passages like this, where, in which the prophets are, are declaiming against God's enemies, and he's quoting them in such a way as to say, you guys are acting not like God's faithful followers, but you're acting like his enemies. So God is confirming his promises to the patriarch. He is vindicating his king. He is taking vengeance on his enemies and making atonement for his land and people. We also see here in verse 11 
when Paul says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, sing praises to him, all you peoples. This is from Psalm 117, which is blessedly short. The shortest psalm in the whole Psalter comes right before Psalm 119, which is the longest one. Psalm 117, very short. It's hard to find it in your Bible because you keep flipping ahead of it or behind it. It reads, Praise Yahweh, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us. And the faithfulness of Yahweh endures forever. Praise Yahweh. That's all there is to it. And this is not one of those psalms where the nation of Israel is saying, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. This is not one where it's saying, praise him, all you Levites, all you priests, all you who minister in the temple. No, this is saying, praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Praise Yahweh, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love towards us. The faithfulness of Yahweh endures forever. So great is Yahweh's love toward us, his people, us, Israel. His faithfulness endures forever, and that is going to eventuate in the nations praising Yahweh. And we've seen this. I'm not going to flip back to them, but, but you see this in the prophets where you have the nations streaming to Zion, bringing their offerings, coming humbly, coming, bringing tribute coming in recognition that Yahweh is God, that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the one true God of the universe, that he is worthy of all praise and all glory and all sacrifice. And so here we get a, 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 just a, a little taste of that vision of all the nations coming and praising Yahweh. So we see God expanding this blessing, and this blessing again comes through Israel. It comes to Israel and then comes through Israel to the nations. That, God is saying, is how he is doing this. That's what the psalmist says. That's what the writer of Genesis is saying. That is what God is promising. That's what Paul is saying here. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations. Sing praises to him, all of you people. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. This is Isaiah chapter 11. I'll give you a moment to get there. Because we're going to run up to that verse Paul quotes from the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 11 of Isaiah. Paul, uh, Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that's left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He'll raise up a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim won't be jealous of Judah. You're not going to have this conflict between the northern and southern kingdoms. Judah won't be hostile toward Ephraim. They'll swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they'll plunder the people to the east. They'll lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. And Yahweh will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he'll sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He'll break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals, not wearing socks, just sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people. It is left for Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So this is a vision of the future, isn't it? This is a vision of a world redeemed, a different one from the one we live in, right? I mean, if you're going to try to have the wolf live with the lamb now, you're going to need to be replacing the lamb on a pretty regular basis. None of you with children would enable, well, depending probably wouldn't enable, uh, let them play near the hole of the cobra. We can't say that it is true in all things that they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Certainly the earth is not full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Yet Paul is quoting this passage when he says, in that day, the root of Jesse will spring up, will stand as a banner for the people's one who will arise to rule over the nations. They'll rally to him. The Gentiles will hope in him. His place of rest will be glorious. Who is this root of Jesse? Thank you. So I think what Paul is saying here is that this future is beginning to break into the present. It's not here yet. But what we see is that God is confirming his promises. He is vindicating his king. He is taking vengeance on his enemies and rescuing his people. He is expanding this blessing to the nations through Israel, whom he has blessed. And he is beginning to have this future, this glorious future, break into the present. How? Good. Yes. This is the message that Paul has. This is what he's teaching. And so he says, yeah, I know you guys, you're solid, you know a lot. Uh, I've written you quite boldly on some points as if just to remind you, by the way, for a lot of you, it's not a reminder. But, you know, God gave me the grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That's, that's what I do. I'm doing what God called me to do. That's what he told me to do. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I was a young Jew in a hurry. I was a disciple of Rabbi Gamaliel. Like, I would be really impressive in any synagogue, but it seems like every time I go to a synagogue, I get kicked out and beaten up. 
God has got me planting churches among the Gentiles, all the way from Jerusalem, all the way to Illyricum. It's modern day like Croatia and Albania, not quite all the way to Rome, but, but you're getting close to modern day Italy. Italy, sorry. And so I am teaching this message. Why? So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul, in fact, calls this a priestly duty. He is entrusted with a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that those Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. How on earth does that happen? Well, let's look at that last passage that Paul quotes. This is in Isaiah chapter 52. The end of, uh, in verse 21 where Paul says, rather as it is written, those who are not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Chapter 52. Let's start in the middle. We have that passage that, that Paul quoted, remember, in, in, uh, in Romans 11. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, proclaim peace, bring good tidings, proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Well, listen. Your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When Yahweh returns to Zion, they'll see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it. Be pure all you who carry the vessels of Yahweh. But you won't leave in haste or go in flight, for Yahweh will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who is the servant? Good. And what does he do? He sprinkles many nations. What do we mean by that? Well, Paul is talking about this priestly service of bringing the Gentiles as an acceptable sacrifice. How do you make a sacrifice acceptable if you're a priest in the temple? What do you do? You sprinkle? Yeah, there, there are, are in, in, if you, you know, read Leviticus, there are rituals for uh, preparing these offerings to be brought to God, and they have to be, uh, uh, they have to be uh, handled in certain ways. Sometimes there's blood that is sprinkled on the altar. Sometimes there's water that's used to wash. Paul is absolutely explicit about his understanding of his job. He's like, I'm, I'm like a priest in the temple, except I'm not bringing a bull or a goat or a pigeon or a handful of flour. I'm bringing the Gentiles. I'm bringing the nations. The nations will come to Zion. Well, here, here's how it's happening, Paul is saying. I'm bringing them there. I'm leading them there. I'm leading them straight to the temple, and I am bringing them so that they can be an acceptable offering. But they would be unclean, would they not? How can they be made acceptable? They could be made acceptable, but what? 
you're so good. Yeah, Jesus. Again, the answer is Jesus. It's by his blood that is sprinkled. This is what Paul is saying is how he makes them acceptable. He, this is why his preaching the gospel is this service, because they can't make themselves acceptable any other way. Can't be made acceptable to God any other way than by the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. And Paul gets to escort them right up there. And this, as we've seen, is true not only of the spiritual descendants of Abraham, This is also true of the physical descendants of Abraham. I'll let you go back and read Romans 4 on your own. This is for everybody. Everybody is welcome there in God's temple. Everywhere, everyone is acceptable through the shed blood of Jesus. And in fact, it is through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It is through Jesus that Paul that God ultimately fulfills, Paul is saying. This is how God is fulfilling his promise, that through Abraham, he will bless the nations, because it is through Abraham's descendant, Jesus the Messiah, that he is able ultimately to bless all the nations. Which means that it's for everybody. You look on the cover of your bulletin, just like you can't put a men's room sign outside your living room and keep your wife out of it, Simply saying that the temple is just for you doesn't mean that it's just for you. This access to God is made available to everybody through Jesus. And so, what Paul is doing in his ministry, and specifically in writing this letter to the church at Rome, a church which has both Jewish and Gentile believers in it, is he's trying to build a church that is undivided. This undivided church, this undivided people of God is able to take ground for the kingdom. It's able to conquer. To the extent it's divided, then it can't conquer. To the degree that people are sniping at one another, to the degree that they're passing judgment on one another and looking down on one another and having contempt on one one another, to the degree they're rolling their eyes at one another, they are not able to be at all fruitful in taking ground for the kingdom. There's a lot of enemy territory to be taken, and you can't get at any of it if you're busy grumbling amongst yourselves, Paul says. But to the extent that the church is undivided, to the extent that it is united, then the gates of hell can't stand against it. And by united, Paul doesn't mean same. He doesn't mean that everybody in the church has to do things the same way. You don't all have to like the same songs. You don't all have to say your prayers the same way. You don't all have to cross yourselves in a certain fashion or cross yourselves at all. You don't all have to take your communion with unleavened bread. You don't all have to take it with real wine. You all need to do what God's calling you to do in your community and to do it faithfully. And you all have to maintain a respectful and a loving attitude, not only toward others in your community who do things a little differently, but toward other communities who do things differently. Some of these differences really are immaterial, and some of, these, some of the differences between churches do matter, and God's made his will clear on those, but a, a lot of those, a lot of these differences are, are things that the Spirit is still working out through the life of the church. I read recently somebody said, it may be that when we come to glory, 
there will be people who ask us what it was like to live in the last days of the early church. Who knows what God is doing and how long it's going to take him. But what that means for us is that like Paul, we do what it is that God wants us to do. We do it faithfully. We keep our hands open. We don't cling to anything that's our particular preference. We don't claim that we know what he's going to be doing. We ask, we seek the Spirit's wisdom, and we seek to follow. We listen attentively to his voice to correct us. We always bear in mind the possibility that we may be getting something wrong, and we always, always, always seek to do what we do for the sake of God's glory, not our own. Because as Paul says throughout this passage, all of this is leading the nations to glorify God for his mercy. All of this is being done in order to bring praise to God. Bringing this offering to God as a form of worship. This is what we get to do. This is the project we get to be a part of. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would keep us mindful of the fact that we are your servants, not our own. That we are part of a much bigger story that you are writing. We pray that you would keep us always humble, always attentive to your spirit and seeking to obey you and not our own preferences. Lord, give us the grace to exclude those things that you have made clear ought to be excluded, but to be gracious and patient with those things that we're not sure about. Give us the grace to grow together as a community, a community that is united, that is undivided, that that in our diversity, with our different opinions and our different ways we like to do things, that we would be nevertheless one church. I pray that for new hope, and I pray that broadly for the church of Jesus Christ here in the Baltimore area and here in the United States and here in the world in the 21st century. We pray that we would live out this reality of the prayer, that we would all be one even as the Son and the Father are one. We ask this all in his name. Amen.